American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to episode 35, 35 of American Timelines. American Timelines by History for Jerks. I'm Amy. And I'm a jerk. Yes, that's and Joe. You agree that I'm a jerk? Yeah, you do, you're a jerk. Well, and this is, so this is for jerks by jerks. That's right. Are you a jerk? Um, Sometimes. Yeah. Everybody's a jerk. Hey, listeners, if you think... Amy is a jerk sometimes, let us know. Like, she's definitely a jerk that time she refused to be uh, apologized about her uh, growing pains error. Speaking of errors, there oh, was oh an no. error oh no. episode before last where... It was? I can't remember exactly what happened, but it was... Yeah? You insisted that you said <laughs> Warren Beatty or something. And you, and, and I said, And I said... I, oh, oh, yeah, you said Warren Beatty. Oh, the Warren Beatty-Ned Beatty paradox. And I said... You you mean Ned Beatty, and you said, I said Ned Beatty, and, and then I said, no, you said Warren Beatty, and then you said, no, I was reading it. <laughs> like, you made, you got real snippy. I, I was even got reading snippy, it. Yeah. I was so sure that I didn't, that I wasn't why, how, why, how can I not say the right one if I'm reading it? Yeah, I did say that. And I, I was, was like, so sure. Rare. And I did listen back, yeah. and you, you first, were. I was right. You were right. So, boom. So, it's two episodes ago, because last episode we talked about Warren and Ned Beatty. Yes. Because we talked about Carly Simon. That's right. Uh, writing that song about Ned Beatty. Yeah. They uh, were big, I guess, in the 70s. The Beatties were a big thing. Beatties. two episodes ago, I will admit, yes, I lied and I was wrong. Yep. And when I was editing in post, I was tempted to take it out. Uh, oh, I would have kicked your ass. And I could have probably got away with it, but I mentioned it to you. I had to come over and tell you, hey. Yeah. Remember when I gave you all the shit about refusing to apologize mm-hmm. about your growing pains? Because you were so sure. You said no. I, I didn't. know. I so know. now I, the tables have turned. So thank you. So I don't want to hear it ever again. Well, so now I understand how you felt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think more often than not, you do that more no. than me probably. No. Uh, you know You're what? definitely wrong. I'm not <laughs> 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 all right. I might be. Okay, so anyway, sorry about that little lovers quarrel, everyone. Yes, we made. I know up. there's a lot of people speeding up the podcast yeah. at this point, but not a so to get to the stuff, get to the info. That's right. So this is part two of 1973. It and is, and we've decided to stop rushing things. We're just going to stop around an hour, and then wherever we're at, we'll just pick up for the next one. So we stopped real early in April. We didn't even get to finish april yeah so because i was about to drop a big bomb in april for oh you on okay something that i'm sure you didn't know i will be sh- if if you knew this yeah if i find out that you knew this next thing yeah i will i i'm so sure you won't know it that if okay. you do okay i will mm-hmm. i will take some dog poop from our yard and i will make glasses out of them and i will wear them to work <laughs> 
I'm sure the Queen City Podcast Network listens to this. <laughs> they're like, really like, what the hell did we get roped up with? Yeah, who are these people that joined the Queen City Podcast Network? They'll just <laughs> let talking anybody about in. dog poop glasses. <laughs> They'll let anybody in this podcast network. Yeah. Hey, um, some of those guys drink beer. There's a whole one on beer. That I'm, you can't tell me those guys have never made poop glasses. Well, they After might be. They did. a few cold ones. So anyway, but anyway, let's if, get back to it. If you know this, I'm going to make poop glasses and I'm going to wear them all day at work. Okay. Uh, I'm even going to put lenses, prescription lenses in the poop glasses. All right. Okay? Okay. April 7th, 1973. I just pictured you having the poop covering the glasses so you couldn't <laughs> see. Oh, no, you, no, no. I was you were like actually, blind that day. No, I'm going to actually form Lint, the like frames, frames so out of poop. They're not Big poop glasses. They're poop frames. That's what you should have said. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess you're right. They're poop frames. <laughs> but the glasses are made out entirely out of poop. I guess I No, could. they're not. The well, frames the, the frame, are. The, the lenses would, couldn't be made out of poop. Really. That was what I pictured. Oh, and then I, you were kind of just wandering around, feeling around, because you can't <laughs> see. <laughs> so you thought I was just going to put poop on the, all over the All lenses. over the glasses. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, I, I guess I'd be willing to do that. I'm so sure you're not going to know this next thing. All right. <laughs> you, that I'll do both. I'll do both. I'll do whichever one. We'll take a listener poll. Okay. We'll have, we'll have the rest of the Queen City podcast work. We'll have the Yelp Charlotte podcast decide if they want poop, <laughs> poop glasses or poop, poop frames. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. How are, uh, I can't believe we haven't been taken off the air yet. Oh, wait. They can't. We're a podcast. All right. April 7th, 1973. Number one song on the Billboard charts. Lasted okay. until April 20th. So this is a long time. The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. Yeah. You know that song? You ever heard it? Yeah, I know I have. Why can't I? Uh, you know the, do you know who sang it? That's going to be the big question. That I think you won't know. I don't think so. I don't think I remember. Uh, they wrote it for Liza Minnelli, and they, she turned it down. They offered it to Cher. Um, Sonny Bono refused it. Jeez. Um, and they didn't have anybody to sing it. So the wife of the guy who, and this, the wife is, she's famous. Mm-hmm. Who is that? Okay, so... Bobby Russell was the one who wrote the lyrics and the music for the song. Yeah. He used, he didn't want to record it. Liza Minnelli turned it down. Cher turned it down. So his wife said, I'm going to record this, and mm -hmm. I'm going to make it number one. And it became a number one hit. And his wife was Vicki Lawrence. Was it really? The Vicki Lawrence yeah, from Mama's Family. Mama's Family, the yeah. actress. She was on a win, loser, draw or whatever it oh, was. Oh, wow. I had no idea she ever recorded music or anything. And it was wow. a number one song. It's a terrible song. Yeah, but, but there's wow. a big picture. So of her. you are you are free of poop glasses. I do not have to wear poop glasses. But here's the like, look at the picture. Or poop her. frames. Or either one. So it's a moot point. Oh, with the funny. Poop glasses and the poop frames. Vicky Lawrence. I didn't oh, know she funny. sang. That's funny. I can't. I don't think anybody will know that. Anybody will yeah. remember that. It's like something that happened. In, Nobody's there's so many it. things I'm learning on this podcast that I it's changing my outlook changing of the life, world. Changing your life, the Vicky Lawrence singing Vicky the night the lights went out in Georgia, it's changing I your life. She was just the, just the you know the you know, Carol Burnett's buddy. We lose her draw person and and Eunice or whoever from Mama's family. What about Carol Burnett show? Oh, but she played Mama, didn't? Yeah, she played yeah. Mama, but and she's she, on Carol Burnett, Carol Burnett yeah, right. before that. Yeah, she played Mama. That's right. 
Who played Eunice? Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett. She was Eunice. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. And that was a number one song. It's like yeah, people didn't understand what was crap. Well, now, honey. Yeah, that's true. There's still crap. I mean, really. Well, and then April 21st, 1973, that was gone. And the new number one song, mm-hmm. Tony Orlando and Dawn. Mm-hmm. You know who they are? Mm-hmm. I feel like we've already mentioned them. Something They had something else. No, you're thinking of Captain and Tennille. I get them confused, too. No, no. Tony Orlando and Dawn, I'm pretty sure. On right. a previous podcast, we mentioned them. Tie a yellow ribbon around, around the, the old oak, oak tree. tree. Yeah. It's been three long years of yesterday. All right. I don't see them. No. Well, and the big thing about that, the only thing I care about this song mm-hmm. is one of the backup singers. Mm-hmm. Did you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe the poop glasses are on the table for this one, too. Well, <laughs> Guess the backup singer. For Tony Orlando and Dawn? Yeah. She's famous. She was a singer in a lot of other things, but she was also on Give Me a Break. Oh, Nell Carter? Nope. Boom. You have to wear the poop glasses. Oh, no. Telma Hopkins. Remember Telma? No. She played Hattie? No. Her sister? Nell's sister on Give Me a Break? I barely. Give Me a Break? Barely remember that. Barely remember. Give Me a Break is the greatest television show in all of history. I don't think so. It is definitely. No, it's Uh, definitely not. Joey Lawrence? Whoa. He was on it. I I'm, no. I wonder if that's available on Hulu or anywhere. I God, please no. I hope not. If it is, I guess know what we're watching. No, see that's we're why going I'm back thinking. to watch it all. Oh man, oh, the, the worst day of my myself. life. Is, the worst day of my whole childhood is when when the chief died. Dolph Sweet died. Yeah. And they had to do a special episode. This isn't the 80s, honey. This is the 70s. Stop talking about <laughs> give me a break. Um, Telma Hopkins sang background on tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Stay on the bus. Forget about us. Put the blame on me. Yo. And when you say, oh, she's famous. Yeah, she's real famous. Telma Hopkins. That's what you said. Telma Hopkins. She's real, She's famous. Well, she was on give me a break. That's not like you. I'm. I'm thinking. Oh, Diana Ross. Who? I don't know. And uh, Diana Ross, Thelma Hopkins, same no. level of fame. No. Yes. No, honey. Yes. No. And Dolph Sweet, all the same. Level all of the fame. same. Dolph okay. Sweet. Dolph Sweet has a very. He he used to have a very intricate writer. You had to have like special like just like Diana for him Ross to be in your theater. Yeah. All right. What's next? Saturday. May. We're into May now. We've jumped to May. May 6th, 1973. Uh, it's a little something you've been missing that I'm bringing back to the podcast. Yeah. Sham, the horse that finished second to Secretariat in the 1973 oh. Kentucky Derby, still holds the record for the second fastest time in Kentucky Derby history. Okay. So he was the second place horse in 1973. Mm-hmm. His name was Sham. Mm-hmm. He was second place to Secretariat. You know, Secretariat's mm-hmm. like the big shit. Mm-hmm. Still, to this day, he holds the record for the second fastest time in Kentucky Derby history. If he had competed in any other year in the race's 137-year history, he would have won the race. Okay. But because he competed against Secretariat that year. Well, he know. eventually would have competed against Secretariat. If he's going to be like the world champion, is that what you're trying to say? No, I'm saying... This horse is wrecked. So Secretariat like blew every other yeah. horse ever out of the water. Yeah. That same year, mm-hmm. 
the second place horse blew everyone, oh, okay. every other horse in history, too. Okay. But Secretariat was faster. Right. So Sham, if it had gotten that speed in any other year, it would have won every every other horse in history except for one. Well, he time. still is. Every other... I don't understand your point. <laughs> so it. So Sham... Sham holds he the second been, fastest. He, yeah, he's out the of second. Out of all of them. Uh, every year. For every year. Secretariat's the first fastest out of all of them. Yeah, but they happen to both be competing that same year. Right. But if he would have competed any other year and been he the fastest, been he still would have eventually been beaten by Secretariat. Right. But so, but he would have won, like, if he would have been in the year after, he would have won that one. So he would have been first for a few years, is what you're trying to say. No, I'm just saying it's the be- second best time. It's funny that the first and second best time we're ever in, in history year. were in the same year. Right. So it's like when Dante Culpepper no, had, we're not talking had about 34 the touchdowns. Uh, he had, like, 33 touchdowns and had a great year. Like four thousand yards, but uh, Peyton Manning had forty-five touchdowns that year. So nobody remembers Dante Kelly ever having a good year because Peyton Manning had the most unbelievable okay. year ever. All right. So it's just kind of like, oh, that sucks. Yep. So and we had to talk about Kentucky Derby. I don't know. I guess it's not that big of a deal. I don't... Who watches horse racing anyway? My mom. <laughs> she does. She <laughs> loves it. Really? Mm-hmm. The racing? Like, mm-hmm. does she? Aren't they real cruel to the horses? No, they're tr- they're no, they don't want them to be unhealthy psychologically. Well, once they lose or, a race, don't they just murder them, give them, feed them to dogs? I don't think so. You're not race horse, not pr- pr- prize race horses. You sure? What yeah. happens to them after they, they lose? go out to pasture? No, I think they probably murder them. No, they don't. Why would they? They do something bad to them. Why would well, they? greyhounds? What do they do to greyhounds? I don't know. They do bad things. They just like leave. They them. still have greyhound racing. I don't know. That's wasn't that a nineteen thirties thing or something? Uh, there's still greyhound rescues. That's true. I don't know. There's probably cockfighting too. Like your cock and cock push ups. Then on May tenth, uh, Thursday, May tenth, nineteen seventy three. Charlotte Queen City Pies. Yeah, they, they we're gonna be kicked out. Let's that should be our goal. Let's get, get kicked, kicked out, out of the Queen City Podcast Network. Uh, Thursday, May 10th, 1973, Bruce Lee collapsed yeah. during an automated dialogue replacement session for Enter the Dragon at Golden Harvest in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Suffering from seizures and headaches, he was immediately rushed to Hong Kong Baptist Hospital where doctors diagnosed cerebral edema. Mm-hmm. Did I say that? Edema? Mm-hmm. They were able to reduce the swelling through the through the administration of mannitol. The headache and cerebral Cerebral edema that occurred in his first collapse were li- would be later repeated on the day of his death. Okay. It's just a little preview. Yep. They gave him Manitol. I don't know what that is. Manitol will help you get your Z's. No, that's not it. Is Manitol when a giant Indian comes out of your No, that's a Manitou. Manitou. God, we got to find what year Manitou came out oh, so we can talk gosh, about it. Oh, gosh, I hope we didn't miss it. It's in the 70s. It's in the 70s? Yep. Okay. Hopefully you don't miss it. I'll have to look that up. Be sure to make note of that. And then Sunday, May 13th, 1973, was the Battle of the Sexes. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, if you're listening, popculture.us, the guy who runs that website, you have this listed as 1972, bro. So a little correction, fella, for that website. I talked to the guy. I know. They don't want him to sue us because we get a lot of our information from there. But And he told me to let him know if anything's wrong. But instead of contacting him again, I'm just He's going to publicly call him out. <laughs> I'm just going to call him out. Well, if he listens, then he'll be like, oh, I'll fix that. Sure. By the way, I'm suing you assholes. 
Um, the Battle of the Sexes was over once and for all when Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs in three state straight tennis sets. Oh. And you know, Billie Jean King is yeah. like a lady. Yeah. Very voluptuous, beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Bobby Riggs is a dude. <laughs> Isn't that weird that that's the only sport where they allow women and men to compete against each other? Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. Like, it comp- comp- a sport where you're playing against someone else, not parallel, but like against someone else. Yeah. But then, and then recently there was a dust up of like uh, John McEnroe made some statement about how uh, he, you know, um, one of the uh, Serena. Serena Williams mm-hmm. uh, is like the greatest tennis player of all time mm-hmm. ever. A lot of people say she's the greatest man or woman that's ever played, but she's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Which I don't. Isn't like ping pong? Like, what's the? How does it really that? Oh, Tim Anderson's say, gonna kick your ass. I, I don't get what the difference. Like, he'll never just, listen to this, but he'll get your ass. I just don't watch ping pong. Yeah, I have a lot of friends that love tennis that I don't get it. Like, I don't. It's just a ball going back and forth. Like, they barely even volley. It's like three times over yeah. the net is all it does. Anyway, um, but apparently she's the best. And so John McEnroe recently was like, "Well, for a woman, she's great." And then there's a lot of. Oh, well, Serena. he's supposed to be kind of an asshole. I yeah, think. he's always been an asshole. And Serena Williams like, screw that guy. But there's more controversy because Serena Williams just lost. Um, and she threw like a big tantrum kind of fit, oh, yelling and screaming. Uh, but she was like, you know, if a dude did this, nobody would yeah. say a word. But because I'm saying it, you're because I'm doing it. I'm a woman. Yeah. Everyone's calling me out. Give me fouls and all this stuff. John McEnroe would throw his tennis racket and shove it up his ass and make himself <laughs> vomit everywhere. Nobody gave him foul points yeah. and stuff. So, which I think she's right. I think like categorizing that as her being a a brat or spoiled loser or whatever it is mm-hmm. is just as sexism. I think. Yeah. But tennis in general is stupid. Yeah. Me, but. I don't know, but it's. I mean, it's just weird that it's the only one that men and women compete against each other. Like you want to have women? No, they don't. They don't compete against. This was a special thing. Like they don't. They have. Oh, they don't. Women's. Yeah, they're separate. Oh. Yeah, this was just a special. They had like a event, like oh, okay. to see who was better. I think. Oh, okay. I think. Well, there know. you go. Yeah. Learn something new every day. I think you could have been clearer. Sorry, but tennis is dumb. Yeah. Well, at one time I saw Serena and Venus play each other you know mm-hmm. their sisters yes you know there was two yes there was two williams sisters and then they had another sister that was shot like by a uh, gang violence oh like wow drive by accidental uh but i don't think that other one played tennis or maybe she did i don't know yeah i have no idea but serena is the younger and but she's better yeah venus i think yeah that's what i've heard is that right mm-hmm. anyway but they both play tennis so tennis is dumb yeah but if they're real true athletes, they would also play other sports like, oh, I don't know. Like what? Juggling. All right. What's next? Juggling's not a sport. Okay. Thursday, May 17th, mm-hmm. 1973, U.S. daytime television is interrupted by the Watergate hearings. Oh. Which would continue until August 7th. Okay. All the way from May to August 7th. Each network airs coverage in rotation mm-hmm. every third day. Mm-hmm. ABC is first, then CBS, and NBC. Okay. To me, that concept is weird. That they would take turns 
airing it. Oh, instead of all being on at the same time. Yeah, instead of like now every station breaks in and everything and they all yeah. compete with each other. Like they had an agreement, like who would do what. I that guess. is weird. Yeah. And then Saturday, May 19, 1973, Stevie Wonder takes over the Billboard charts with, you guessed this one last time for him, same year. You are the sunshine of my life. You are the sunshine of my, my life. life. That's a good one. Always be around. Yeah, this one, uh, I really like this song. And I think I think he's singing to me. No, he's not. But I was listening to this in the car the other day, and I, I never noticed this. I thought Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder sang that whole song. Oh, no, there's a woman, right? Yeah, and a dude. There's another guy. The first line is sung by somebody else. Oh, is it? Yeah. Um, uh, Jim Gilstrap. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. <laughs> yeah, I love his stuff. His greatest hits yeah, album. Is... You know, it's it's a shame that Jim Gilstrap didn't help Stevie Wonder out more with his career. Yeah, because, really? You know, Jim Gilstrap mm. is the shit. He's no Stevie Wonder. I mean, Stevie Wonder's no Jim Gilstrap. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that funny? Jim Gilstrap. Okay. I love that name. It sounds yeah. like a name I made up. It does. Jim Gilstrap. I wonder if everybody called him Gilstrap on. Hey, Strappy. Hey, Strap on. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> We're probably the first people to ever call <laughs> the great Jim Gilstrap. Strap on. Strap on. Old Strap on Jim. <laughs> He's probably like some some super famous, unbelievable producer or producer. something. Yeah. yeah. We're just calling him Strap on Jim. Uh, and then Saturday, May 26, 1973. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Edgar Winter Group. Yes. You know them? No. Nope. They take over. They knock Stevie Wonder off. Okay. Frankenstein. It's an instrumental. Oh. Um, in live performances of the song, Edgar Winter further pioneered the advancement of the synthesizer as a lead instrument by becoming the first person ever to strap a keyboard instrument around his neck. Speaking oh. of strap-ons. Giving that him is. the onstage that's, that's, mo- mobility that's and audience interaction of guitar players. Yeah. Um, that strap-ons you know came the song? twice like that. It's... Uh, I feel like there's other songs that have used this as an influence. Yeah, I want to like, hear it. It's like the beginning of it sounds like so many. What's old it called? Frankenstein. Frankenstein, and it's called Frankenstein because like they, for a long time they were like putting this song together. That they would play and it would, it would like take a life on its own. Like it would change every time they played it. It changed. Like oh. they'd just they just go into different uh, riffs and stuff. But I feel like it sounds like so many other songs. There you go. Oh yeah. American woman. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think people sample different parts of the song because they all sound so different. There's total seventies sound right there. Yeah. If I was ever going to make a 70s porn. Yeah, so anyway, it just goes on and on like that for a while, but it's pretty funky. Yeah, that's, it's not bad. Yeah. The beginning is cool. But I feel like there's like three or four 70s songs that sound like that. Mm-hmm. And then we're into June now. We're June 2nd, 1973. Paul McCartney then takes over the Billboard chart with a terrible, shitty song he wrote about to Linda McCartney. Oh. 
My Love, Paul McCartney and Wings. Oh, I don't know. I don't even think it's worth playing. Okay. That, wor- that works for me. I'm not a Wings fan. Yeah, I, it's terrible. Yeah, Wings was pretty bad. I don't know. If you like this song and you're a listener, please stop listening to our podcast. No, stop. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. Just kidding. Um, you know what I just realized? I also, at the end of last episode, I said, please rate us four stars. <laughs> you did? Yeah, I told him, I, I told people to give us four instead of five. I didn't. I'm an idiot. You idiot. I'm stupid. Now people go, are going to do Go that. in there and say we're just okay. Yeah. Well, four's not terrible, I'm sure. Um, and then Wednesday, June 20th, 1973, the movie A Touch of Class comes out. Did we see the, the pre-something for this? Um, I feel like we did. I see, I thought all the movies came out. This was, I think this is included because it's an Oscar winner. It's not one of the top five highest grossing. Oh, okay. Uh, Touch of Class stars George Seagal. Yeah, we watched this. George Seagal. Oh, it was that madcap love. Glenda Jackson and Paul Sorvino. It looked like it was eight hours long. Uh, Glenda Jackson's Oscar win for this movie was so shocking to viewers of the ceremony that a recount was considered for the votes. Uh, the Oscar was rumored to be going to Marsha Mason for Cinderella Liberty or Ellen Burstyn for The Exorcist, as they were the front runners. Ellen Burstyn should have won that for sure. Are you pissed about it? Yeah. I'm Touch of irate. class. It looked stupid, I think. Yeah, it I, did. I don't even know. It was like a madcap romance. Well, George Seagal is that guy who plays everyone's dad in sitcoms, right? Mm-hmm. Like he plays, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he's in a bunch of stuff. But it's, uh, yeah, it looks stupid. Mm-hmm. Yep, I did. And now I will await the text from Brandon Wilhelm, who says, well, yeah, it was kind of dumb, but I saw it 14 times. Uh, <laughs> little Muppet. That one's better than the Paul McCartney one, but this one took over. This one knocked Paul McCartney off top of the charts june 30th 1973 george harrison knocks paul mccartney off and making the first time in history a former beetle oh yeah knocks off another former beetle up the charts off the number one chart ever um george harrison did it ever happen again i wonder give me love give me peace on earth i don't know yeah i don't think ever yeah i think it's the only time probably um although you know, could be because that's obnoxious. You're obnoxious and beautiful. Anyway, George Harrison, "Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth." That's better than the Paul McCartney one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think now my favorite Beatles in order are John Lennon, mm-hmm. George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and then Ringo. Like and Ringo is everybody's last. Nobody likes Ringo. Any That's why it was so funny in The Simpsons when Marge had a thing for Ringo. Yeah. Because nobody really does. Yeah. Nobody likes the drummer. It's just Ringo. Just Ringo? Yeah. Because people like Tommy Lee. That's right. And some other drummers. Can you name any other drummers? <laughs> Neil Peart. Neil Peart. Neil Peart. However you say it. About, um, God, what's the guy with the one arm? Phil Collins. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't have one arm. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Bill Collins was a drummer, a though. Drummer. You're right. Yeah, no, the Def Leppard guy that 
we talked about. I don't remember his, his like name. He used to drum with his wiener. <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> I forgot his name. We got some comedy gold going on here. We do. Gosh, Queen City Podcast Network. <laughs> They're going to send us a cease and desist. Yep. Please stop using our ads. Saturday, June 30th, that same day that George Harrison takes over the Billboard charts, mm-hmm. Concord <laughs> pilots chased a solar eclipse at Mach 2. Okay. They chased, they a, chased solar, a solar eclipse. A solar eclipse, yeah. That's crazy. So they extended their view of it from seven minutes, mm-hmm. which is normally about the time you can see a solar eclipse, right. to 74 minutes. So they just had those glasses on for 74 minutes yeah, staring at it? going really fast in a jet. Like, I don't think that's safe. They shouldn't, be, shouldn't have been doing that. The eclipse was observed by a group of scientists from the Los Alamos National Laboratory using two airplanes to extend the apparent time of totality by flying along the eclipse path in the same direction as the moon's shadow as it passed over Africa. Okay. Uh, one of the one of the planes was a prototype of what was later to become the Concorde, which has a top speed of almost 1,300 miles an hour. Um, That's fast. This enabled scientists from Los Alamos, the Paris Observatory, the Kitt Peak National Observatory, and Queen Mary University of London and the University of Aberdeen and CNRS to extend totality to more than 74 minutes, nearly 10 times longer than is possible than viewing a total solar eclipse from a stationary location. Okay. The Concorde is specially modified with rooftop portholes for the mission. A porthole? Porthole, so they, they port can look out you. the top to see it. Um, oh, yeah. look at your porthole. I, I'll sh- I shove things in portholes all the time. Yep. And it's currently on display with the solar eclipse mission livery. At some this is fascinating. At, as, anyway, that plane is on on display somewhere at some museum okay. that has a name that I can't pronounce in French. Uh, isn't that weird though that they people were looking through that eclipse on an airplane yeah. with portholes in the ceiling? Yeah, I guess that's weird. Would you have ever known that happened? Now, when you say you thought it wasn't safe, were, uh, were picturing, you were you picturing the sun getting closer to the Earth? No, I was picturing the pilots like not flying, not looking at the oh instrumentation. I was imagining the pilots like okay. staring into the For sun. For a minute, I was worried about you. I oh, you thought they were going to fly into the sun? Yeah, <laughs> that's no. what I thought you were worried no, I just about. Mean, like, shouldn't they be watching the controls? Like, shouldn't they be paying attention? Like, they're not yeah, watching where they're going. They're out, just looking like at the staring at the sun for 74 minutes to stare at the sun instead of driving. I mean, they're going pretty fast not to look at the they're road. pretty fast. To keep your eye on the road. <laughs> I guess the clouds. <laughs> there's no road up there. That's true. But still, there's birds and shit, right? Isn't I there, don't like, think that high up. Yeah, but don't they have to, like, pay attention to, like... There's no birds that high up. What do you think? Well, there's certain certain species. No, there is not. <laughs> yeah, but don't they have to, like, watch out for other planes and shit? You, yeah, that's a good point. I guess you don't watch out for planes. They just tell you where to go. Like, some controller's yeah. telling you where to go. Yeah. Because it'd be too late. Like, if you saw one. You'd be like, right. Oh, Oops. I guess not. Veer hel- off don't they have to the... watch for helicopters or, like, well, I guess they don't, helicopters go, that high don't go that high either. Right? So there's just nothing else up there, huh? Mm-mm, just other planes. Just Jesus? And Jesus. Jesus, take my wheel. Jesus should take the wheel. Saturday, July 7th, 1973, Billy motherfucking Preston takes over the Billboard charts. and There's I'll, a lot of music up here. Yeah, there's a lot of songs. This is a great song. Okay. Will it go round in circles? Mm-hmm. Like a bird and a frame. Will it go round in circles? Uh, 
this song you would know from it's in some movie or something it's 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 real popular everywhere mm-hmm. um i love it uh good but uh but you know who billy preston is mm. i decided as i was researching this i was more interested in who he was i no not not really he was a top, i know of him he was a top session keyboardist in the 60s okay in which he backed artists such as Little Richard, Sam Cooke, and Ray Charles. Okay. Um, and the Beatles. He went on to achieve fame as a solo artist with mm-hmm. That's the Way God Planned It, Out of Space, Will It Go Round in Circles, Nothing from Nothing means Nothing. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. That song, too. Mm-hmm. Um, he also co-wrote You Are okay. So Beautiful with Joe Cocker. So he's a big freaking deal. Yeah. Um. But he, the Beatles song that he wrote is Get Back. Oh, that's a good one. Get Back. Mm-hmm. I think he probably co-wrote it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I thought that was pretty good. I had no idea that he did all those mm-hmm. songs. But when I go around in circles, that was the song I was playing earlier. Do you want to hear it? Or do you know it? Um, I, I kind of know it. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's been a, probably a million things. I feel like it's everywhere, but I love it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. I That's just right. like it too much. It just I love it. All right. And then Tuesday, July 10th. Yes. 1973. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a long one. I think this was from a forensic files or something. Um, oh. Do uh, tell. 16-year-old John Paul Getty III. Okay. Does that sound familiar? No. He was kidnapped in 1973, mm-hmm. and his billionaire grandfather refused to pay $17 million ransom. Okay. After the kidnappers mailed Getty's ear to a, news, a newspaper, his grandfather only agreed to pay $2.2 million because that was the maximum amount that was tax deductible. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fucking cheapskate. Oh, my God. Getty was kidnapped in the Palazzo Farnese in Rome at 3 a.m. on July 10, 1973, when he was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. According to his girlfriend, Martine Schmidt, he had toyed with the idea of getting himself kidnapped by petty criminals when the couple were struggling to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. But he changed his mind because both of them started getting work modeling for photographers. Okay. She stated that Paul didn't want to get kidnapped anymore, but the kidnappers were following him. He was blindfolded, transported, and imprisoned in a cave. The kidnappers issued a ransom note demanding the $17 million, uh but when that message arrived, some family members suspected that the kidnapping was merely a ploy by Getty, as oh. he had frequently joked about staging his own kidnapping mm. to extract money from his wealthy grandfather. The kidnapper sent a second demand, demand, but its arrival was delayed by Italian postal strike, by an Italian postal strike. Right. John, John Paul Getty Jr. asked his father, J. Paul Getty, for the money, but his father refused, arguing that his 13 other grandchildren could also become kidnapped targets if he paid. As time wore on, Paul's treatment by his captors grew worse. They took away his radio, killed a bird that he had taken as a pet, and began playing Russian roulette against his head. Jeez. In November 1973, a daily newspaper received an envelope containing a lock of hair, a human ear, and a threat from the kidnappers to mutilate Paul further unless they were paid $3.2 million. Man. The letter read, this is Paul's first ear. 
If within 10 days the family still believes that this is a joke mounted by him, then the other ear will arrive. In other words, he will arrive in little bits. Oh, man. Paul's health began to decline rapidly as his wound became infected, combined with pneumonia caused by the cold winter temperatures which were descending. His captors were alarmed at his sudden at the sudden decline and gave him large doses of penicillin, yeah. which caused him to, to develop an allergy to the antibiotic and further affected his health. Getty's biographer John Pearson attributed his later alcoholism to the large amounts of brandy that he was plied with. His later alcoholism? He survives this? Yeah, of his captivity to keep him warm and numb his pain. Yeah. Uh, after his ear was sent, his grandfather negotiated a deal to get him back for about $2.9 million. Now he paid two point two. He nickel and diamond him. And then he lent the remainder to his son. What's that? He's still He's, nick, well, nickel he nickel and diamond. Yeah, so he two point two million was the the only amount that was tax deductible. So he would only do that much. But then he he lent the remainder to his son, who was responsible for paying the sum at four percent interest. Paul was found alive on December fifteenth, nineteen seventy three, in petrol station of Loria in the province of Potenza, mm-hmm. shortly after the ransom was paid. At his mother's suggestion, he called his grandfather to thank him for paying the ransom, but J. Paul Getty refused to come to the phone. Oh, my God. Nine of the kids. What an asshole. Yeah. (laughs) Jeez. Miser. That's why rich people stay rich, because they don't spend their money on anything. Yeah. Nine of the kidnappers were apprehended, including Girolamo Piromali and Severio Memolititi. Yep. Memolititi. That's exactly right. Mamotit. Did that perfectly, honey. Memolititi. High-ranking members of the... High-ranking members of the Ndrangheta, a mafia organization in Calabria. Mm-hmm. Two of the kidnappers were convicted and sent to prison. The others were acquitted for lack of evidence, Wow! including the bosses. Most of the ransom money was never recovered. Getty had an operation to rebuild the ear that his kidnappers had cut off. Wow. Yeah. That should have been your story. Yeah, you took my thunder there. I thought that was going to be your story. Well, it wasn't. You want to tell it? <laughs> It could have been. I thought that, didn't we, I feel like we heard about this before. No. No? No. That's fucked up. That is, that's crazy. I can't believe that old man was so stingy. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Oh my God. So you love that story because it's all gross, true crime, bloody, gross no, body it's parts being cut. Cra- it's craziness. Yeah, it's insane. Wednesday, July 11, 1973, 123 passengers died on an airplane. More death for you, babe. Oh, wow. Um, this is Flight Varig, Flight 820 between Brazil and France mm-hmm. because of a fire started by a cigarette. Oh, man. Since then, all airplane bathrooms are required to have an ashtray, even though smoking has been banned on all so domestic they, flights. since. They didn't have an ashtray in the bathroom back then? They didn't, apparently, yeah. Um the, so gross. The fire started in the rear lavatory. Uh, uh, let's see. Crew members moved to the front of the airplane toward the emergency exit as many passengers in the rear of the plane inhaled smoke. Prior to the forced landing, many of the passengers had already died of carbon monoxide oh, poisoning man. and smoke inhalation. The aircraft that would almost be a better way to go. Yeah, I guess. Gosh. The, in a plane crash. The aircraft landed in a field five kilometers short of the runway in a full flap and gear down configuration. Whatever only, that means. Only, yeah. I don't know. Flapping gear? Flapping gear down. Only one passenger survived. Another plane crash where one oh passenger survived. That's crazy. Oh, the major part of the crew left the plane by emergency exit at the top of the cockpit. Possible when you go through your life thinking you were just invincible. After that? Yeah. yeah you would. 
Yeah, so anyway, that's how they started putting ashtrays in there. Um, and that's why they do it even now that there's no smoking on the flight. The sole surviving passenger disobeyed instructions to remain in his seat. Really? Yep. That's probably what saved him. Oh, I wonder why. And there were some famous people who died. Uh, people who died in that uh, flight uh, were George George Bruder. Are you making shit up? An Olympic sailor. Felinto Muller, president of the Senate of Brazil. Mm-hmm. And Agostino dos Santos, a singer. Oh, also, yeah. Julio Delamare, oh. sports journalist. <laughs> all those guys, yeah. They all died. I got posters of all of them in my bedroom. I've noticed you've been putting posters up. Yeah. Of people of who all died those, in those guys. Just then. those guys. Yeah, it's weird. Mm-hmm. And then on Friday, July 20th, 1973, cult movie star Bruce Lee dies. Was in Hong Kong to have dinner with actor George Lazenby, with whom he intended to make a film. According to Lee's wife, Linda, Lee met producer Raymond Chow at 2 p.m. at home to discuss the making of the film Game of Death. They worked until 4 p.m., then drove together to the home of Lee's colleague, Betty Ting Pai, mm -hmm. a Taiwanese actress. The three went over the script at Ting's home, and then Chow left she's, to attend she's a Taiwanese? dinner meeting. Huh? She's Taiwanese? Better Betty Ting Pai. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What that I think that's racist. I don't know, but um, <laughs> sorry. I like Thai food. Oh, I love Thai food. You know what? Pad Thai is delicious. Uh, but that's different because that's Thailand, not Taiwan, honey. Oh, Taiwanese Thailand. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so I guess who's the racist now? Yep. I'm an idiot. Later, Lee complained of a headache, and Ting gave him an analgesic. Yes. Equagesic. Equagesic was the name of it, okay. which contained both aspirin and the tranquilizer meprobamate. Get the syllables, honey. Chunk it up with syllables. <laughs> That's what we tell the kids. Meprobamate. Okay. Meprobamate. Meprobamate. I can't say that. Around 7.30 p.m., he went to lie down for a nap. When Lee did not come for dinner, producer Raymond Chow came to the apartment, but he was unable to wake Lee up. A doctor was summoned and spent 10 minutes attempting to revive Lee before sending him by ambulance to Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Bruce Lee was declared dead on arrival. DOA. At the age of 32. Wow. There was no visible external injury. However, according to autopsy reports, Lee's brain had swollen consider considerably from 1,400 grams to 1,575 grams, a 13% increase. Okay. Um, they did all this stuff, but anyway, I'm going to make a long story short. Good. Um, um, in a 2018 biography, author Matthew Polly consulted with medical experts and theorized that Lee died from cerebral edema caused by overexertion and heat stroke. Mm -hmm. Heat stroke was not considered at the time because it was then a poorly understood condition. Furthermore, listen to this. This is crazy. Bruce Lee had previously had his underarm sweat glands removed what? in late 1972. Why? In the apparent belief that underarm sweat was unphotogenic on film. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
so this caused Lee's body to overheat while practicing in hot temperatures on May 10th and July 20th, 1973, resulting yeah. in a heat stroke that killed him. Oh, my God. I didn't know that's what killed him. I had no idea he had a sweat glands from his armpits removed. I know, because he didn't want to look bad on film. Yes, I didn't know that you could even have that happen. I would like to have that happen. What? Well, just... Because of your armpits? Your armpits are always on film? No, I won't have pit stains. Not because of film, I just... I want to have that happen, but... He's buried next to his son, Brandon, at Lakeview Cemetery in Seattle. Is that nuts? Yeah, that is nuts. goddamn... (laughs) Sweat glands removed from his armpits. Well, it's it's not, and it's not so that his son died real young too in films. Wouldn't it be even worse if his if we found out his son had sweat glands removed? And that's why yeah, and that's why he died too. Like I will never. Now I will. He never... was shot because he had his sweat glands removed. Oh, was it? yeah, he was shot. A mistake on a movie. Yeah, set. I will never not think of that now when I think of Bruce Lee. Did like that dude glands, doesn't have any sweat glands in his sweat glands. Okay, that's fucking crazy. Yep. Saturday, July 21st, 1973, Jim Croce takes over the Billboard charts. You know I thought what? you said Jim Crow. Jim Croce. Jim Croce, right. I thought you just said Jim he Crow. He died. Oh, wait. He's not dead yet, but he took over the Billboard charts. Okay. Do you know who he is? Yeah, I know who Jim Croce is. You know what song? If I could get time in a bottle. No, that's at oh. the end of the year. Bleh. Hey, Sorry. I was in the same damn year. You got the same year, though. Is it uh, Don't Tug on Superman's Cape? You don't spit in the little wind. You don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. No, but it's bad, bad Leroy Brown. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's the same kind of difference. Same kind of a Jim, bad Leroy yeah. Brown. Baddest man in the whole damn town. You don't fuck with Jim. He's right though. Um, no, bad, bad Leroy Brown. I like bad, that song. Bad, bad Leroy Brown. That's not how it goes. That's kind of baddest like that. man in the, in the whole, whole damn, damn town. town. Better than old King Kong. Meaner than a junkyard dog. Oh, yeah. Um, his inspiration for the song was a friend he met in his brief time in the U.S. Army. Okay. He met him at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And they were linemen on the telephone lines. Okay. In a school together. Um the guy went AWOL and then came back at the end of the month to get his check. And they put handcuffs on him and took him away just to listen to him talk and see how bad he was. I knew someday I was going to write a song about him. And they're saying that that other Jim song, mm-hmm. you don't fuck with Jim, whoever it is. I yeah. think that was partly about that guy, too. Like, oh, <laughs> he, really he was obsessed guy. with that guy. He thought that guy was badass. Yeah. And then Monday, July 30th, 1973, mm-hmm. Hollywood Squares was on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You don't. Oh, this is this is one of your dates from the last episode. Oh, I don't know. Do you have the paperwork for no. him, like something like he went to court and stuff. He must have just gone to jail. You don't want to talk about those things. No, because like I finished? don't. I don't even have it. You don't have the paperwork anywhere. No, it was dumb because we already tied up that story. So oh, don't worry about it. You were going to mention it in the next episode, like nah. you went to court. Well, okay. whatever happened with that guy, something happened. To that Hollywood guy. Squares was on. While um. Paul Lind was the center square. I think he always was. Yeah. Uh, and McLean Stevenson was on it. Mm-hmm. Pearl Bailey, Meredith Baxter, Meredith Baxter Bernie, Harvey Corman. No, is it Michael Meredith Landon. Baxter or Meredith Baxter Bernie? I think. It says on here as Meredith Baxter Bernie. Oh, okay. Uh, Michael Landon had ninety-two pounds of hair. He was on there. Connie Stevens. Yep, he sure did. McLean Stevenson, who you were always hot for. I think they, I think every one of these people had thirty-two pounds of hair. Not McLean In Stevenson. the 70s. 
Oh, heck yeah. You want to start a McLean Stevenson podcast? No. Where we just talk about everything McLean Stevenson has done? Nope. Okay. What What's next? Uh, Saturday, August 4th, 1973, Maureen McGovern takes over the Billboard charts. Never heard that. August name. 4th to 19th, August 17th. Mm-hmm. The Morning After. Nope. Uh, it's written for the 1972 film The Poseidon Adventure we talked about. Yes, we saw that This trailer. song. It's terrible also. Yeah. I think it's worse than that Helen Reddy song. I woman, and woman hear, hear me, me roar. <laughs> yeah. Um In fact, I don't even want to give it any more time. Okay. It's that bad. Sounds good to me. It sucks. And then Wednesday, August 8th. That brings us to Wednesday, August 8th, and I think that's when you oh, have your Oh, well, I have a story that ends kind of ends in the August 8th. It rambles a little bit here and there. Oh, so we should but, have been bringing it up previous to this or not? Well, it's it's um it's a we'll see we might want we'll see how it goes okay we can cut it out if we if it's okay you'll try this get one boob out and try it no i'm not doing that all right uh it starts on april 20th 1972 oh oh wait a minute april 20th 1972 the yeah. same day that carmen electra was born Oh, no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> well, okay. Carmen Electra was being born while this happened. So um, on that day, Mark Scott walked out the front door of his house in the Heights neighborhood in Houston. Well, I'm not familiar with that neighborhood. And he was never seen again. Oh, that's um, it? That's the story? Yep. Mark so, Scott. Mark Scott. So parents and the younger son call the classmates and see if they've seen him. They get in their car. They roam the streets. They um, go check the hospitals, all that stuff. Uh, a few days later, uh, they finally go to the police and report him missing. Okay, as so, you would, so that's not suspicious. A few days later, they receive what seemed to be a hastily written postcard from Mark. How are you doing, he wrote. I am in Austin for a couple of days. I found a good job. I'm making $3 an hour. That's not very and good. His mother and father shook their head in disbelief. Their son, who was only a junior in high school, had left for Austin without saying a word. Huh. They were convinced that something ha- ho- terrible had happened. Mark hadn't even taken his beloved motorcycle. Oh, you know, a guy don't leave his motorcycle, especially if he's a sophomore in high school, yeah. even for $3 an hour. So he they never hear from him again. Then never. on uh, the evening of August 8th, 1973. Oh, oh, so this is <laughs> where we're at right now. That's yeah. when um, um, Bernadette Peters and Charles Nelson Riley were on the $10,000 pyramid. Also, uh, Spiro Agnew. Uh, mm-hmm. Brands as damned lies. The reports he took kickbacks from government contracts in Maryland, and he vows not to resign. Okay. Um, the the Houston television stations cut into their regular programming. According to the reporters, a 33-year-old man named Dean Coral oh, had shit. been shot to death at his home in Pasadena, a oh, Houston Dean. suburb. Oh, man, Dean Coral. The police had learned that Coral had been renting a, me- a metal storage shed located just off a narrow, dead-end street about nine miles southwest of downtown. That can't be good. Detectives were at the shed now, the reporters continued, and they were digging up the bodies of teenage boys. Oh, no. All of whom had apparently been murdered by Coral. Oh, Dean Coral. Yep, he was 16. Guy. Yeah. Checking their notes, the reporters said Coral had once been a resident of the Heights, where he helped his mother run a small candy factory on the West 22nd Street. Never this trust anyone story. who runs a candy factory. This is a story of the Candy Man. This is the can the, the Candy Man. This is the Candy Man. Like the one, 
like what they made the movie like Candyman. They, Candyman they based they it. In the they mirror. part. They partly based this off of. What them. is this also what Charlie and Chocolate Factory is based on? No, no. Oh, candy Factory. I'm, and and I'm you know who else worked in a candy factory, don't you? Uh, um, uh, Dolph Sweet, Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, he did. Remember oh, chocolate yeah, he made chocolates and he had made chocolate yes. wieners. Put his penis in the chocolate. Or no, something. he didn't. Yeah, he did. Well, maybe he did. Wieners. There's something with wieners and chocolate. No, he took a head to work one day. Oh, God. Put it in the God. Jeffrey Dahmer was fucked up, wasn't he? Was, yeah, was <laughs> he just, he up. took a head to work one day. Yeah, that's right. That's a, that was not that bad. <laughs> there was something with wieners and chocolate. He put dicks. He didn't put chocolate. He, he, put he had a bunch. He put them in the, the freezer. Oh, he put penises in the chocolate. No, remember? he didn't put his he penis did. in the chocolate. Not his. He cut. He no, cut people's he, penises. No, off, he didn't put them in the chocolate. I'm that was sure he your, did. that was a dream you had. You have a dream All about right. penis chocolates. <laughs> okay, so. Um, by the next day, police officers were exhuming bodies from a wooded area. Some of the bodies were covered with a layer of lime powder and shrouded in clear plastic. Others were nothing more than lumps of putrefied flesh. A few still had tape strapped across their mouths. Others had nylon rope wrapped around their necks or bullet holes in their heads. So he got these kids as they were, like, coming to the candy factory? Like, hey, kids, come look at my candy factory, right? Well, we'll see. Okay. Within a week, the remains of 27 young males had been found. That's a lot of people! Yep. Uh, the New York Times quickly labeled the killings the largest multiple murder case in United States history. Candyman. The phrase serial killer had not yet been coined. It surpassed the 13 women choked to death by the Boston Strangler in the early 60s and 16 people shot by Charles Whitman in 1966 from the tower at University of Texas. Yeah, those two murders are ain't shit to compare to this one. And the, Yep. And so soon reporters began flying to Houston. 27. From all over. Um, Don't mess with Texas. It wasn't just the number of murders that caught everyone's attention. Um, of, of the victims that the medical examiner's office could identify, at least 20 of them had been residents of either the Heights or an adjoining neighborhood. Uh, or they were Houston boys who had been somewhere in the Heights right before they disappeared. Huh. All of the Heights victims had gone missing between December 13, 1970 and July 25, 1973. Eleven of them had a, eleven of them attended the same junior high. And, and nobody was suspicious? That's right. How, everybody wanted to know, how was it possible so many boys could have been snatched away from this working-class area of Houston, which is only two miles wide and three miles deep, without anyone, police, parents, neighbors, teachers, or friends, snapping to what was happening? What the hell? Right. Because they're poor, probably, right? Right. And Nobody cares about poor people. And then they wanted to know why had Coral wanted to kill them. He was known in the words of one reporter as a pleasant, smiling candy man of the heights, always handing out treats to the neighborhood children who dropped by his mother's factory. The candy man can. Um, what made the story simply chilling, though, was the revelation that Coral hadn't acted alone. Oh, no. Somebody's helping him. Two teenagers from the Heights admitted to police that Coral had recruited them to be his assistants, 17-year-old Wayne Henley and 18-year-old David Brooks. And Wayne Henley would later go on to become Don Henley. Yeah. They said they had lured boys into Coral's Plymouth GTX muscle car or his white van, asking if they needed a ride or if they wanted to go drink beer. After taking the boys to one of Coral's apartments or rental houses. A muscle car and a white van? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> two worst things that you could possibly yep. Never trust anybody with those two things. Henley and Brooks would help Coral strip them naked, take their, <sighs> tape their mouths, bind their hands and legs, fasten them with handcuffs, 
to a sheet of plywood that was two and a half feet wide and eight feet long. Jesus. And a lot of times they were forced to write letters to their parents or sometimes even call them, letting them know they were okay and would be back soon. Oh, yeah. And then Cora would assault, torture, and murder them. In their confessions... So they were forced to tell their parents they were fine. Yeah. So that they wouldn't come looking for them. Right. But why would these two guys help them? Well... In their confessions, they mentioned the names of many of the teenagers they had helped murder, several of whom were friends, including Henley's longtime buddy, Mark Scott, oh, which was the Scott. guy from the beginning. Yeah, the guy at the beginning. They admitted they helped Coral carry the bodies to his car or van, and they helped bury them in one of his private cemeteries. One morning, Brooks said in his confession, he and Henley spent a few hours fishing before pulling the dead body out of Coral's van and digging him a grave. Ugh. Although the two teenagers were the products of what were called broken homes, they had dropped out of school. They were hardly regarded around the heights as troublemakers. Not one person who knew the teenagers understood how they could have turned so quickly into vicious sadists. That's crazy. Um, in 1974, Wayne Henley received a life sentence for his role in the murders. A year later, David Brooks got his own life sentence and was sent, and was sent to Ramsey Unit south of Houston. Oh, so... The Brooks and Henley, yeah, they didn't become famous artists. No, they definitely did not. Um, Don Henley's related. So, in the mid '60s, when he was about ten or eleven years old, Brooks stopped at the Coral Candy Factory, which was just across the street from his elementary school. Um, yeah, if there's a candy factory across from elementary school, kids are going there all the time. That's right. That's right. So, um, but he he immediately was fascinated by Dean Coral and he was he was nice he didn't call him a sissy um and like then, everybody else did and he ended up idolizing Dean Coral he oh God. he said he was the first adult male who didn't make fun of him oh, yeah he didn't make fun of you but he had made you murder people in in their confession Henley and Brooks mentioned the names of many of the teenagers they had helped murder Oh, we already said that. I already did that part. Um, raised in, in Indiana and Tennessee, Coral had come to Texas with his mother and siblings when he was 16. In 1962, the family moved to the Heights so his mother could open her candy factory. Coral ran I the assembly line. To open a candy factory. Uh, and in his free time, he not only handed out candy to the kids, but invited them to a back room in the factory where he had set up a pool table. He gave the kids rides on his motorcycles, and he outfitted his van with cushions, carpets, and a television set so he could take them to picnics at the beach. Again. As far as the Heights' parents were concerned, Coral was a perfect gentleman. They regarded his fondness for children to be no different from what they would find in a respectable scoutmaster, which we know. Well, yeah, that's yeah. not a good no. endorsement. Scoutmasters all are raping everyone. That's right. Um no one adored Coral more than his mother, Mary. Coral, in turn, loved pleasing her. In 1965, he successfully applied for a hardship discharge from the Army where he had compiled an exemplary record because he said his mother needed him back home. Um, at one point, Mary's third husband told his wife that he suspected Coral might be homosexual because of the number of young boys he invited over to the candy factory. That's not homosexual. She refused to believe it, later telling a reporter for Houston Heat his, her son was loyal and obedient, helpful and loving, and a good, normal boy. That's, that's pedophile. That's I know. Exactly. Well, back then, they, yeah. they thought that, that homosexuals were pedophiles. I, I know. It's terrible. It Michael is. Jackson. What? Michael Jackson. <laughs> I think Michael Jackson. I'm sure to think Michael Jackson did it. I was 
an ongoing debate in my head. I know, Michael but Jackson why did that innocent. pop up? All right, anyway. Uh, sorry. Cool. Because um, he, he had all those little kids at Neverland. So his mom moves away, and he stays there. He gets a job as an electrician. Um, what happened to the candy factory? He She sold it. She closed it. What kind so of candy did they make? They made pecan pralines and divinity and stuff like that. <laughs> pecan pralines? Yeah. So um, he What's decided divinity? it's like this fluffy stuff. Right. So anyway... He he began to invite teenage boys over to his apartment, some of whom he had been eyeing since his days at the candy factory. One of those boys was David Brooks. After he arrived, Coral seduced him. Ugh. According to those who knew Brooks, the introspective young teenager was not gay. In fact, he had a girlfriend who lived in the Heights. But you had to understand that Dean had become David's father figure, said Brooks' attorney. He had taken care of him, given him money when he needed it, and let him stay with him whenever David needed to get away from his real father. You could just stay here whenever you want. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll help you out. I'll be your kind of like your role model, but just let me rape you sometimes. And so on December 15th, 1970. What date? December 15th, 1970. Oh, you, are, you, are you saying the same day that uh, on Green Acres, Lisa, Lisa discovers women's lib? Uh, and so she does all the men's chores and then makes Oliver just become a house husband? That's right. That On that day, day oh. um, Brooks, who was then 15, walked unannounced into Coral's apartment. In the confession he gave police two and a half years later, he said he saw two naked boys tied to Coral's bed. Oh, God. And so, so God. Coral gets, he says, what are you doing here? And then, and then Coral t- tells him a lie that he's part of this gay pornography ring. And then later he changes his story and he tells him he killed the boys and buried him in a storage shed. So um, I'm going to skip a little bit of this. Police barely investigated the boys' disappearance. Um, all the missing persons reports in that era for juveniles throughout Houston were divided among various officers in the juvenile division. Um, they all labeled them runaways, um, and they refused to investigate most of these boys that C- went missing. Because they're poor people, probably. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, this makes me sick. Yep. And they they would say that there's all kinds of kids hitting the road, hitchhiking across the country, joining communes, and being part of the hippie movement. Well, it was the seventies, right? But that's that's what they thought. All of them that the they'd be 70s fine. Are fucking crazy. Yep. How are any of us alive? I know that we're born in the seventies. It's, it. it's nuts. So after those, it? after um, those murders, Coral moved to the to the Place One Apartments in Mangan Road, five miles northwest of the Heights. And on January thirtieth, nineteen seventy-one, well, when Mary Tyler Moore was on, and it was the specific episode where uh, Murray was a frustrated play- playwright, but his play was accepted by the Twin Cities Playhouse, and both Ted and Mary joined the cast. But Murray's very upset because Ted sucks. Oh, I don't remember that one. Yeah, remember um, that one? Mary he Tyler struck Moore. again. So he, but this time he had a helper. He and Brooks drove into the Heights. Excuse me. And saw two boys um, who, who were on their way to a bowling alley. And they, if those boys had just stayed home to watch Mary Tyler Moore with Ted yep. Knight. They, so these boys ended up in Coral's new apartment. There, Brooks said in his confession, he watched as Coral strangled them. <sighs> Although the Waldrop's home was only half a mile from the church where these boys disappeared, the police still did not investigate. Damn police. 
I know. So the murders would have stopped right then, of course, if Brooks had simply gone to the police. You but know, to quote Ice Cube, F the police. Not sure what else to do, Brooks dropped out of high school where he was a freshman and began spending more time with Coral. As a reward, Coral bought him a um, Corvette for his birthday. Well, you know, I got to say, if you're going to buy me a Corvette, yeah. I'm probably going to look the other way on some of the murders. So on March Corvettes 9th, nice. 1971. Oh, you mean... The same day that Emmanuel Lewis was born, the greatest oh actor in American history, Webster. Coral and Brooks spied 15-year-old Randall Harvey, who was riding his bike to work at a FINA station. Brooks, who knew Harvey well, was probably the one who persuaded the teenager to throw his bike into the back of Coral's vehicle and ride with them. Come on, Randall. This is going to so be So that fun. was another victim. Come on. You're just going to be naked and dead soon. And March, I mean, on May 29th, 1971. Oh, when Marco Rubio was born? They went after two boys on the north side of the Heights who were walking to the neighborhood swimming pool. Um, when the officers in the juvenile division, hold on, some of this might not make sense since I'm skipping. Nothing makes sense to me right now. Anyway, trying to skip so. a lot of this stuff because it gets, it's really. It's really gross and rapey? Is that yeah, why? Yep, I knew it is. You can skip all the rapes, we get the idea. So there was more, more and more victims. Raped. More people getting raped, more people getting murdered. But the whole time, even though Coral had been torturing and killing boys, no one realized anything was amiss. His co-workers at Houston Lighting and Power always had good things to say about him. And the manager of one apartment complex where he had lived and committed murders called him a good tenant as we've ever had. Oh, God. And then there was Betty Hawkins, the single mother who first met Coral when she worked at the candy factory and started dating him in 1968. Oh, Betty Hawkins got the booming system up top in the back. She's looking fly. No, she told later told police he wasn't sexually aggressive with her. She said he was a wonderful man who wanted to settle down and get married, and she never considered it odd that meant most of their dates were in the presence of her children or with Brooks and Henley tagging along. There was always kids there. We played a lot of Parcheesi. Um... Let's see. Skip ahead a little bit. Um, so by late 1972, Coral and his teenage henchmen had become a finely tuned killing machine. So they I, I skipped the part I where Henley. Yeah. I um I skipped the part where Henley comes in. He comes in and he meets Coral and um. Yeah, we kind They draw that. they draw him in t as well as Brooks. <coughs> um. One afternoon on June 26th. When when uh, um, Hollywood Squares was on again, but this time with Vincent Price is on there and Soupy Sales. Oh, but again, Paul Lind is still the center square, yeah. no matter what. So, Remember um, Soupy Sales? They brought down 17-year-old Billy Botch, who used to sell Mrs. Coral's candy door-to-door, -door, uh, and his 16-year-old friend Johnny DeLone after the two had left Botch's home to buy soft They just keep raping drinks. and killing everyone. Yep. So, um... It's they, amazing there's a whole left. list. There's 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 like 27. Well, of you them. said 27. So, yeah, 27 teenage boys are raped and murdered. Yes. So, um, how many did Jeffrey Dahmer kill? I think 21. So that Jeffrey Dahmer is nothing compared to this fucking guy. And we guy. don't even know who this and is. We've never heard of this guy right. before. Why is there not a movie? Let's get the movie going. Oh, it would be too they gross. star Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. So on August 8th, this is where the culmination. Yeah, now we're back to August 8th again, which is the same day Spiro Agnew was like, That's damn flies. Right. And uh, the same day Bernadette Peters and Charles Nelson Raleigh. <laughs> so 
on August on pyramid on August eighth, yeah. Wayne Henley arrives at Coral's house with his buddy Tim Curley and his new girlfriend Rhonda Williams. Oh, Tim Curley gonna save the motherfucking day. A popular girl from the Heights whose previous boyfriend had been Frank Aguirre, whom Henley had brought to Coral more than a year before. Oh, Rhonda Henley insists he didn't bring his friends over to Coral's to be attacked. It was just supposed to be a night of fun, he says adding that he only had Williams with him because she had been arguing with her father. Oh, they were going to just play some Parcheesi, yes. maybe play some That's what he Tiddlywinks, thought. maybe do some Leapfrog. In the living room, they drank beer, and Henley and Curly bagged some paint, which mean, was sniffing fumes. Bag paint? Sniffing, sniffing fumes? But after they fell asleep or passed out, Coral went on the attack. He hogtied all three of them and gagged Curly and Williams. Him. He kicked Williams over and over in the ribs, then carried Henley into the kitchen to let him know just how angry he was that Henley had brought a girl to his home. Oh, because he only wants dudes. Mm-hmm. Did he get a boner during all this? I, I don't know. After Henley promised to murder Williams, Coral untied him. They returned to the living room, Coral carrying his twenty-two pistol and Henley a knife with an 18-inch blade. Coral oh. first dragged a terrified Carly back to a back bedroom, then returned for Williams. He tied both of them to his torture board and started to sexually assault Curly. A sheet of plastic covered the floor. Suddenly, Henley grabbed Coral's gun. He aimed it at Dean, said Williams, who yes. regularly visits a psychiatrist to deal with PTSD. Um, and he Wait, said, who regularly? Williams, the girl that was there. And Wait, he, he aimed it at Dean. Wayne Henley, the henchman. Yeah, he pointed the gun at Dean. Yeah. And why does that come with her PTSD? She's witnessing this oh, whole she's, thing. She's, she's telling being, it. Okay, gotcha. uh, she's being assaulted and stuff yeah. tied up to him. Um, I, he said, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. And he shot him. Whatever evil was in Wayne, there was still some good in him. And finally the good one. Wayne saved my life and he saved Tim's too. Wayne killed the devil. So when police begin to interrogate Henry, Henley about Coral, asking why he kept the handcuffs and the plywood board and the plastic sheets in the bedroom, Henley, no doubt, panicked. Had he not said anything, it's possible the police would never have learned about the murders. But instead, he let it slip that Coral had once bragged about killing boys and burying them in a storage shed. So then they, he takes them out to that boat shed, and they start to dig, and they find the first body in minutes. Uh, yeah. They allow the reporters to walk right up to Henley. They thought he was his hero. They thought, you know... That he had saved the day. Before they found out that he was complicit in all this for years. But by the next day, he was admitting his involvement to the police. Oh, man. Then soon after, Brooks was escorted to the police department by his distraught father, who told detectives his son also had something to say. Man, how do you sleep at night? How do you even sleep and go about your day? Henley showed the police the burial site at the reservoir that he and Brooks took them to High Island, which was another burial ground. I guess you just sniff paint, and then you're... And oh, really? there's questions that it wasn't just 27 boys because there's a couple. There was a um, oh, one of the bodies at, at High Island was identified as a boy who had went missing way before the two um, yeah, Brooks and Henley uh, were involved, and so they think that there's so there's it could a be lot. Like, it could be like 30. Yeah, it could be more. 40 it could even? be. It could be. Yeah. Man, how long he had been doing it before they were? The 70s were crazy. People just didn't report anything probably like there was no well the 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 ends of the it was before the internet and it was before cell I mean, phones and before before any, any of that so no the two side the two sides of the county weren't aware that oh. the other side was missing all these boys too and the media wasn't paying any attention to it either how do we survive as a people 
Don't you ever wonder that sometimes? How are we alive as a species? How are we? I know. I know. It's crazy. That is. That is crazy. Yeah, I know. And gross. It is gross. I told you it was a gross one. Yeah, I mean, I like the guy with the ear fall off his ear. Yeah, that was a good one. That was better than your rapey story. I know. Well, you took. You just always. You should have given me the guy. Well, I. I couldn't find anything else. I didn't remember. God, get off my back when you do three in a year. I I gotta find three (laughs) fucking stories. And they all happen at the same time in the year. What am I supposed to fucking do? Well, I just feel like you're you're googling rapes. No stories of seventy three. Like no, definitely not. I'm definitely not. Okay, well let's let's. uh, Dorothy Puente didn't rape anybody. Wow. She was a hot woman. You can't rape the willing. <laughs> what? Yeah, that lady had some fine teeth. She looked good. She did. She All right. Good. August eleventh, nineteen seventy-three. I think this is an hour, babe. Almost. We okay. got a couple. Let's just finish August. Okay. August eleventh, nineteen seventy-three. Mm-hmm. Hip hop was created. Oh. It was invented. It's been traced to August 11th, 1973. Really? We have the address at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop was created by a guy named DJ Cool Herc. How, and how did they, how do they, like, gauge that hip-hop was created? So here's what he did. Um, um, he... Contributed to developing the rhyming style of hip hop by punctuating the recorded music that he was playing as a DJ with slang phrases, announcing, "Rock on, my mellow b boys, b girls, are you ready? Keep on, rock steady. This is the joint. Hurt beats on the point to the beat, y'all. You don't stop." Okay. So he's called the founding father of hip hop, um, because on August 11th he was a dis. Disc jockey and an MC at a party in the rec room at Sedgwick Avenue. Um, he extended an instrumental beat, which is called breaking or scratching, to let people dance longer. Yeah. So he'd play a record. Like, normally DJ would just play a whole record before yeah. dance. But he would keep extending the part without words yeah. to just keep going so that people could keep dancing and break dancing. Oh, yeah. Um, and during those times... Like but they weren't break dancing in 1973. Yeah, they were break dancing. They were? And he would... he So he would... when. When it was about to, the break was over and it was going to go back into the song, he would just like start pulling it back, like scratching. Like, scratching. Like pulling it back and to yeah. start over. So it's just extended. And while Doesn't he. Was, fuck up the record when they do that? Uh, probably a little bit. But while he was doing that, he uh, he began emceeing, which became rapping later, saying stuff like, yo, go to the beach. And he'd start rhyming. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing about this is, um, I mean, this helped lay the foundation of a cultural revolution but this the this the copies of the the albums he was playing which is what yeah. i want to know right away like what were the albums were two james brown uh albums of sex 1970 sex machine album oh okay and he ran an extended cut and mix of the percussion breakdown from give it up or turn it loose that signaled the birth of hip-hop okay dj cool Herc's name was clive campbell Mm-hmm. He was a Jamaican American DJ, and he invented hip hop. On August 11, 1973, mm-hmm. he called dancers break boys and break girls, or b boys and b girls. Um, and he, his style was quickly taken up by figures such as Africa Bambata and Grandmaster Flash. But unlike them, he never made the move into commercially recorded hip hop in its earliest years. Hip-hop was invented, and we'll end right there with DJ Cool Herc inventing fucking hip-hop. 
I like I like hip hop. I, I don't know. know if you've noticed. I do notice that. You but like that's if that you got your happened. notorious B.I.G. shirt on right I'm now. I'm wearing my notorious B.I.G. shirt right yeah. now, which um, Ben Baxter also has this shirt. B. Bax. Oh, I guess. Guy I work with. Okay. Uh, and another guy I work with named uh, Curran, who claims to be a listener, but I don't think he really is, has this shirt. Okay. So anyway, notorious B.I.G. rules, but. Uh, yeah, hip hop was invented in 1973, y'all. A lot of people That's don't know right. that. And so, thank you for listening, guys. Yeah, but it's, we were out of time, so we're gonna have we're gonna continue 1973 with a third episode, and we're trying to get a special guest movie expert uh, on our show next week, hopefully, to just kind of instead of us just Drawing, looking up stuff, yeah. we're just gonna just have, let him give us the deets on these movies because he knows every lot of movies movie. in the next episode. Yeah, and he's a big nerd, and we'll make fun of him, and he's got beautiful red cheeks and his beer but anyway thank all you right. guys for listening yep. give us 18 stars everywhere you go and Not tell four. all your friends and um, send us um, pictures of your grandparents okay something something but all this right. has been history for jerks american timelines episode 35 yes take it away matt truman and matt truman's gonna sing now and we gotta get out of here chuck berry get the f- we almost forgot to sing it we have to say that. Yeah. Get out of here. I don't think anybody knows why we say that. Get out of the bathroom. Do they have to go back and re-listen to episode one, goddammit? He's from St. Louis. All right. Bye. Right. Happy birthday. Baby, if you're trying to love me. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.